Good morning. Uh, it's great to see that update. If you check on our social media or on the emailer this week, there's a link to an advanced annual review, which is a whole number of videos from around the world of what's going on. So do check that out and be encouraged by what God is doing in different places around the globe. Well, the story that managed to knock COVID off the news this past week was that of Sarah Everard being murdered. And then the protest last Saturday night, which had this very now iconic photo of Patsy Stevenson being manhandled to the floor and trussed up by the police. And I think a lot of the reason why that story has got so much traction is because of the man who's accused of murdering Sarah Everard is, of course, a serving police officer. And when somebody who we are meant to be able to trust uh, catastrophically breaches that trust, it has a big impact. And then that was compounded by the way the policing was carried out at the protest on Clapham Corner last week, a sense of, can we trust those whom we are meant to be able to trust? The thing I want to talk about this morning, we're in the book of Malachi, doing three messages from the book of Malachi, and the theme I want to look at this morning is about unfaithfulness and how we are not to compromise with unfaithfulness. This is what it says in Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty." Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. And then verse 16, the NIV, which we use, the new NIV, does a very strange thing and translates verse 16 as nobody else does. And uh, so I'm going to use a footnote from uh, the NIV, which is actually the same as everybody else translates it. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now there are <clears throat> two dangers when looking at a passage like this from the Old Testament. One is that we um, forget that we're new covenant people and become legalistic. When we read the Old Testament, we always have to remember the completed work of Christ, that Christ has carried the burden of our sin. He's carried our curse, and we are now able to stand righteous before God. And so we mustn't take scriptures like this and become legalistic about them. But at the same time, another danger is that we just kind of soft soap passages like this and uh, gloss over them and say they no longer are relevant to us, and we shouldn't do that either. We need to see 
the message that this has for us. And really, the underlying message here is that God loves faithfulness and hates unfaithfulness. God describes himself as the faithful God. Exodus 34, God appears to Moses, and it says this, As he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What is God like? God is faithful. And so I've got two goals this morning as we look at this passage. The first one is to help us see that we mustn't compromise with unfaithfulness. And the second goal is to see that we must trust in the faithfulness of Christ. Those are the two things I want us to see today. Now, we human beings are made in the image of God. God is faithful, and because we're made in the image of God, uh, we, in our emotions and feelings, are able to and often do reflect God's emotions and feelings. And we human beings, we don't like unfaithfulness either. So, when a young woman is murdered by a serving police officer, that offends us because we know the police are meant to protect us, not do us harm. When there are scandals of abuse, as there have been so many in recent years in all kinds of institutions in society, that offends us because we know that's not meant to happen. When we see hypocrisy in politicians or corruption in business leaders, those things upset us, they offend us because we have a sense that these people should be faithful and they have broken trust, they have broken faithfulness, and that causes us offense. The trouble is, because as it says in Jeremiah, the human heart is deceitful above all things, often, even as we feel a sense of offense at others breaking their trust towards us, we can be very blind to the sin in our own hearts. And the people that Malachi is addressing in this prophecy at this time, this were a people who were poor, materially poor, and they were being unjustly treated. Life was hard, and they saw themselves as the victims. But here, God actually calls them out. And he says, it's not that you're the victims, actually, you are guilty. You are the ones who have been unfaithful. And to help us understand this more, we need to go back into some of the history, dig into some of the context. We need to look at the book of Nehemiah. We need to read the book of Nehemiah alongside the prophecy of Malachi. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king in Persia and then asked permission to travel to Jerusalem to help his people. And in 445 BC, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and he finds all kinds of Compromise. The people living in Jerusalem are not being faithful to God, not being faithful to the promises, and Nehemiah tries to sort things out. And in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, we read about a moment when the people gather together in Jerusalem, and Ezra, the teacher of the law, reads the word of God to the people, and there's a great conviction of sin. The people recognize how they have been unfaithful to God. And it says that there's great sorrow and the people are weeping in sorrow because of their unfaithfulness. And then that sorrow turns to joy because Ezra says to them, this isn't a time for weeping. God is kind. God is gracious. And their weeping turns to joy. And then in Nehemiah chapter 9, we read about the people making this great confession of their sins and identifying just how their actions have been very different from those of the Lord. Nehemiah 9 verse 33, they say, In all that has happened to us, you, Lord, you 
have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. They've got 99 problems, but unfaithfulness is the real one. That's their problem. And so they say, see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. The people recognize that they're in a mess, but here their whole kind of thought pattern begins to change. They're no longer seeing themselves as the victims. Actually, they're seeing themselves, well, the problem is us. The problem has been our lack of faithfulness to the faithful God. That's why we're in the mess we are in. And then get to chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah, and the people make a binding agreement to be faithful to God. And there's some specific things that they promise to do. One is that they promise we're not going to intermarry with the Ammonites and the Moabites. We're not going to intermarry with pagan people who don't follow God. And they promise that they won't break the Sabbath as they have been doing. And they promise that they'll bring all the tithes and offerings to the Lord in his temple as they should. And the priests promise that they will be faithful in their priestly duties. And that is all good. And then having got things sorted out in that way, Nehemiah goes back to Persia for a time and then comes back to Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah 13, we read about how Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and finds that all the good work that has previously been done has unraveled. That all the promises these people have made, this moment of national repentance and identification of what they'd done wrong and promising to live differently, it had all unraveled and they'd gone back to behaving just as they had before. And it's that unfaithfulness which Malachi is addressing in his prophecy. And we need to see why the things he addresses are serious and how they have some application to us. First area he identifies, the first area of unfaithfulness, is the way that the priests are compromising, the priests are being unfaithful. The priests were a group of people who were meant to stand between God and his people. They were the representatives of the people who would come to God on the people's behalf and who would speak to the people on the Lord's behalf. They were the mediators, the intercessors between God and his people. And when they were unfaithful, their compromise compromised the whole nation. We are very familiar with how this works. If somebody in a position of authority compromises, then the whole institution is compromised. You see it in, all, in every area of life. You see it in all areas of leadership. If a pastor compromises, the church is compromised. If a business leader lacks integrity and fiddles the books, it compromises the whole business. If a politician compromises, it affects the whole political scene. The fish rots from the head down, as the saying goes. If there's not integrity, if there's not faithfulness at the top, then rot spreads to the whole body. And so Malachi speaks to the priest. In Malachi 2, he says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. 
When the, when the priests compromise, it's not only them who stumble, but they cause others to stumble. That's why their compromise is so serious. The second area of compromise which Malachi identifies is over finances, over money. In uh, chapter 3, verse 9, he says about how the nation is under a curse because they're not bringing their tithes and offerings to God. The reality is that what we do with our money reveals what is going on in our hearts. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you investing your cash? That reveals what's really going on in your hearts. And where there is financial compromise, that always leads to other forms of unfaithfulness. And where that is unfaithfulness, that inevitably leads to financial compromise. And we always have this fight going on, as Jesus described it, this battle between which master are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve mammon? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to trust? It's always, in the end, a question of trust. Are you going to trust in the Lord and worship him with all that you have? Or are you going to trust in your own resources and hold on to what you have? Are you going to compromise or are you going to be all in in your love and service of God. Financial compromise isn't just about whether or not you're putting some money in the offering plate. It's about where our hearts are and where our trust is in God. And so financial compromise is serious. The next area of compromise that Malachi identifies is Sabbath compromise. People of Israel were called to keep the Sabbath, Saturday, to do no normal work on that day. And again, this is really a question of Trust. It's an ex- exercise in trust to say to the, to the Lord, to one another, we're going to trust God that we don't have to work seven days a week. That if we have a day off, God is able still to provide for us. God will keep us. And the whole purpose of the Sabbath was that it was a time for the people to commit, to commit to finding rest and refreshment and to worship the Lord. It's actually a way of dethroning the tyrants who would seek to dominate our lives. The tyranny of non-stop productivity, of non-stop activity, of feeling we always have to be available, always have to be working. It dethrones that tyrant and says that we trust the Lord instead. In our 24-7 society, we tend to think that seven-day activity is a, a sign of our freedom. Seven days a week, you can buy what you want and have whatever you want delivered to your door and all the rest. Actually, it's not freedom. It's a form of slavery to be caught up every day in the kind of the whole commercial uh, system. And God had called his people to step out from that. They'd been slaves in Egypt. They'd been making bricks. They'd been under tyranny seven days a week. And God says, no, you're to enjoy Sabbath. There's a day a week where you are not to do your normal work as a sign of your freedom. And this people had abandoned that. Keeping the Sabbath was meant to demonstrate how they were different from the other peoples. They weren't following the same master. They had a different trust. They had a different Lord. Now, we Christians have been brought into an experience of Sabbath by Christ. When we put our trust in Christ, we're brought into the rest of God, into that place of refreshment and worship with him. And that means that we're still called to live lives which are Sabbath-shaped. 
that we're not to live as slaves to the tyranny of the world. We are to live with a sense of freedom, that we can disengage from the 24-7 treadmill, that as we trust God, we're able to step back and to find rest and refreshment and to give ourselves in worship and not feel guilty about that, but to enjoy that and enjoy God's in that. We're not to be slaves to the systems of the world, but we're to enjoy our freedoms as the people of God. Then the fourth area which Malachi addresses here, and probably the most difficult one really for us, is that of marital compromise. And this passage speaks directly about divorce. And this is a difficult area. It's obviously many amongst us who have yourselves experienced divorce and uh, want to tread with sensitivity here. But there are really two interlinked issues which Malachi and his prophecy is dealing with here. One is intermarriage, that uh, Jewish men are marrying women from pagan tribes, and that is intertwined with divorce, because what seems to have been going on at this time was that some of the men were leaving their Jewish wives in order to marry Moabite and Ammonite women. And we might have a number of responses to that. One we might feel, because of our cultural context, we might think, is this just a racist issue? What's the problem? What's the problem with a Jewish man marrying a Moabite or an Ammonite woman? It's not an issue of racism. It's actually an issue of idolatry. This is what it says again, Malachi 2, verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Some of the men were leaving their Jewish wives in order to marry foreign women who didn't worship the Lord by being unfaithful to their wives, they were actually being unfaithful to God. They were being drawn into paganism through these women that they were marrying. Now, it would be easy to do a whole message on divorce, and perhaps we should do that sometime. But really, the key application, I think, for us in this is that if you are a follower of Christ, and if you are married, then our faithfulness to Jesus should be reflected by our faithfulness in our marriages. That faithfulness in marriage is actually a reflection and part of being faithful to Jesus. Malachi 3 verse 16, it says, Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Those of us who are married, we need to be on our guards and not be unfaithful. Now, all these different things which Malachi addresses here holds together. The reality is that if you're unfaithful in one area, then you're more likely to compromise in others. And this really is summarized by what Malachi says in verse 5 of chapter 3, where the Lord speaks through Malachi and says, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see how this all holds together? The people of God are called to be faithful in all these different areas. If you're a follower of God, well, you're to treat migrants fairly. Don't treat refugees, migrants, don't treat them unfairly, and don't lie. 
and you're to pay honest wages, and you're not to commit adultery. The, the whole thing holds together. Personal and societal morality and justice, the whole thing holds together. And if you compromise in one area, you're much more likely to compromise in another. And if a community, if a people is to thrive, there really needs to be faithfulness in all these things. You can't have a society which is thriving if the poor are being oppressed. That doesn't lead to societal health. And you can't have societal health if marriages are unraveling. It all holds together. And you can't have a healthy society if people in authority tell lies the whole time. The whole thing holds together. That personal morality and that social justice, it all hangs together. And where there's been unfaithfulness, there needs to be genuine repentance, which means real change. And what we see in this story is that the people are sorry, but they're not really repentant. Malachi 2 verse 13, You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? They seem to be surprised by God's displeasure. And they say, why? Why is God displeased with us? What we see here is that they are not expressing a godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, change, and restoration. What they're displaying is a worldly sorrow, which just reflects the fact they're not experiencing the things that they want to. The Apostle Paul addresses this in his second letter to the Corinthians as well. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And these people were living in worldly sorrow, which just brings death. They weren't expressing genuine repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. It's like they were saying, well, these things are private matters. What does it matter? Who I sleep with and what I do with my money and all that stuff and what, whether I trade or not on the Sabbath. It's a private matter. What does it matter? What does God care? And Malachi gives them a reality check. God is witness to all our promises, all our contracts, all our covenants. And God is faithful and God hates unfaithfulness. And this people are being unfaithful in all these areas. And God calls them to repent. Now this is a challenging passage and a challenging message. And it may be that it affects you very personally. It may be that you've been in a position of leadership, a position of authority, and have not acted with the integrity which you should, with all kinds of consequences. It might be that you haven't trusted God, that the whole notion of uh, kind of a Sabbath-shaped life is foreign to you, that your whole life is shaped by having to keep on the treadmill. It might be that you haven't been financially faithful as the Lord would call you to be. It might be that you've been unfaithful in your marriage. And the thing is that worldly systems really can't fix this stuff. We're hot today on accountability and safeguarding and whistleblowing. And those things are useful, but they only deal with the symptoms, not with the root. 
If all we're relying on those is we don't deal with the root problem, all we're actually left with is worldly sorrow that brings death rather than true repentance which brings salvation and leaves no regrets. But there is hope for us. I said this morning at the beginning that I had two goals for this morning. first one was to see that we mustn't compromise with unfaithfulness, and the second is to see that we must trust in the faithfulness of Christ. And we can have hope in the one who is faithful. We have hope in the faithfulness of Christ. And so where we have compromised and where we have been unfaithful, we turn our gaze to Christ and put our trust in him. This is what it says in the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's, the, that's us not compromising with unfaithfulness. Get rid of the stuff that hinders. Avoid the sin that so easily entangles. Be faithful. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. Now, we are on the Easter road. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, two weeks to Resurrection Sunday. We're on the Easter road. Jesus went to the cross without compromise. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him. Think about him. There's things that we need to acknowledge in our lives where we've compromised. Let's consider Jesus and do that. If there's things which we need to confess, let's confess our sins before our Savior who is kind and merciful. Let's repent of any compromise that there might be in our lives. But let's look to Jesus and consider him and trust him in his faithfulness. The empty cross means that we can trust him completely, wholly, and fully. Whatever we might have done, whatever compromises we might have made, wherever we might have been unfaithful, the faithfulness of Christ is sufficient to cover them all and to leave us without any regrets. That's the free offer of the gospel. That's the hope that we have, that we can have forgiveness and no regrets. Amazing. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. He is faithful. He has endured the cross. He has scorned its shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. And let's not grow weary or lose hearts. But let's stay faithful because he is faithful. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this wonderful truth of forgiveness, which leaves no regrets. That, oh God, we come to you and we find your mercy. You're, you, Jesus, are the one who didn't compromise, didn't budge an inch. And your righteousness, righteousness now is given to us so that we can stand before God, open arms, open hearted, without a shadow, without shame. 
And so I pray for us, Lord. I pray this morning, if there are things which we do need to bring to you, I pray that you'd help us to do that, to recognize them and to confess them, and then to find the freedom that is ours in Christ. Thank you that you are faithful. And I pray that we would be faithful as your people in this place. Amen.